We're in John chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 18, just a few verses tonight. Well, every night. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, but just to fill you in about what came before. It was this outstanding uh, episode uh, in the recorded life of the Lord where he was in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. He was uh, displeased, angered by what he saw there in the, uh, the uh, court of the Gentiles. This, that's where the money changers were, in the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles who were inclined to seek after God would go up to the temple but could go get no closer to the, to the temple than this courtyard called the court of the Gentiles. There was a barrier set up, and it actually said to Gentiles, seekers after God, it said, uh, if you cross this barrier, you do so at uh, a threat to your life. So this was very serious. So Gentiles who came to the temple knew they were confined to this particular area. If they were coming to seek after God, how could I know this creator? What is his name? Is something moved them to go up to this holy place and they would be restricted while they're to this area called the court of the Gentiles. And in that very place, that's where the Jewish money changers would be and merchandisers. They would be selling animals to be offered in sacrifice. And so you'd have this bickering and bartering and clinking of money and all this stuff. And can you imagine what a distraction that atmosphere would be to to Gentile people realizing their spiritual uh, hunger and wanting for it to be satisfied? Can you see how unsatisfying the atmosphere would be and how it would be so difficult for them to find their way to God in the midst of all this? And so the Lord was angered by it because he wants his people to make it easier for other people to find their way to him. And his people in that day, the Jews were not making it easy for Gentiles to find their way to him at all. So he was quite upset. And so you remember, he fashioned a whip, probably out of the ropes used to restrain some of the animals to be offered in sacrifice. And uh, to what extent he used it or not, I don't know. The text doesn't say. But he was serious about this. And he, it's called the cleansing of the temple. He cleansed it of the money changers and all the rest. Remember, he said, how dare you do this? My house is to be a house of prayer. Remember all that? Well, that was an astounding thing, and it attracted the attention, as you might imagine, of the Jewish religious leaders. Okay, now, with that as the background, check out verse 18, John 2, verse 18. The Jews, now, when you see that in John's gospel, that's almost always a reference to the Jewish religious leaders, not the Jews in general, but here, the Jewish religious leaders. And so the Jews then said to him, he did something, and they had a response to it. So they said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Now, what's up there? They knew that when Messiah came, he would distinguish himself by displaying his credentials through a miracle or two. There were many who claimed to be the Messiah. Even in this day, 
There were a few in particular. One said, I am the Messiah, and I will prove it to you by separating the waters of the Jordan River. That's what he said he was going to do. Another pretender to the throne said, you know what I'm going to do? See the walls around Jerusalem? He said, I'm going to make them crumble merely in the power of my word. So all these false messiahs knew to prove your messianic credentials, the Jewish religious leaders would look for you to perform a sign of your messiahship, a miracle, some kind of supernatural authenticating thing to prove that you're messiah. And so they said, look at this Jesus, this Yeshua, <clears throat> who doesn't look so special, good night, comes from an insignificant part of the country and Nobody knows what school of rabbinical training he went to. He's, I mean, isn't his dad like a carpenter? Isn't he like a blue-collar guy? So they've not seen anything too impressive about this Yeshua. But what he did, what this Jesus did, seemed to be an indication that he was laying claim to being the Messiah. Nobody goes into the temple. Are you kidding me? Without authorization and overturns the tables of the money change. See, all that was authorized by the Jewish religious leaders. So what, by what authority do you go against the, the enterprise we have authorized? And so in overturning the tables of the money changes, it's as if the Lord is non-verbally saying, I am the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. So they say, Show us, perform some, some sign. Prove your messianic credentials by demonstrating a supernatural work. One will do. Two would be better, but okay, one, miracle. Perform a miracle for us. So that's kind of what, what's going on. And uh, well, let me ask you a question. Could the Lord have done something miraculous at that very time? Well, of course he could have. But he chose not to. And it makes you wonder why. I suppose one reason is, you know, he doesn't perform miracles on demand. He, he's, not some, he's not a magician to be at people's beck and call. Perform some trick for us, Jesus. Do you know there's not... There's no such thing as a freestanding miracle in the Bible. In the Old and the New Testament, when you see records of miracles and signs and wonders performed by the Lord and his followers, there's no such thing as one that just happens out of the blue. It's always purposeful. That's what I'm getting at. It's always personal. It's never because people expect you to jump through their hoops. No, 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 no. It's always purpose. His works are almost always a backdrop for his words. But anyway, so he decides here, <laughs> I, I'm not under the authority of these Jewish religious leaders. I, I've come in submission to my father, the highest authority. And so he chooses not to do what they demand him to do. Now, I bet his followers, see his disciples, they were there, they were watching it all. I bet they were saying, oh, come on, Lord. I mean, one little old thing, that would be so cool. I mean, and they might even be persuaded that you are who we are coming to really understand you are. His followers then would have said, why don't you do more miraculous stuff? 
And, and I think his followers today, you and I, don't we say the same t- thing to him? I mean, it's a crazy day we live in, and many people are going after false gods and all the rest. Don't we say sometimes, oh, God, why don't you just, I don't know, do, do more stuff. You know, if you just do more miraculous stuff, then people will be forced to acknowledge who you are once they see the miracles. But, you know, that's not actually true. Do you know... Uh, in many cases in the Bible, when the Lord performed miracles, it, it didn't con- they didn't conjure up belief at all. In fact, sometimes the miracles of Jesus were attributed to Satan. Oh, listen, Mark chapter 3, verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, there was a demonstration of supernatural power, and look at the interpretation, the naysayers attached to it. What he does, he does by the power of Satan. So miracles don't automatically engender faith. It's really interesting. In many cases in the New Testament, we see that the Lord's miracles were oftentimes simply ignored. So, you know, it's a mystery. It is a mystery how anyone can come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Not even miracles. Not even supernatural demonstration of his uh, credentials and power can do it. It's this faith which is a mystery. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus, that's the greatest miracle that you, a spiritually dead person, me too, have been resuscitated enough to recognize our spiritual impoverishment and our need for a savior. How does that, how does that happen? I must tell you, let's not make light of it nor take it for granted. That in and of itself is a supernatural. The, the experience of being converted, moved from darkness to light, how does that happen? Is that, if that has happened in you, to you, it's happened through you by the miraculous intervention of Almighty God. We should always acknowledge that every day. Anyway, so the Lord decides not to give them what they want. Instead, he says this in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, let me ask you a question. What temple do you think they were thinking he was talking about? Any idea? Yeah, the physical temple. And if you and I were there, we would think the same thing. We would not think it's a metaphor. We would not jump from this obvious expression to some deep spiritual meaning. He says, destroy this temple. They're there right at the temple. And in three days, I'll I'll raise it up. That's what he said. Uh, And that's probably what they thought, that it was the physical temple structure he was talking about, but he wasn't talking about that at all. You know what he was? What do you think he was talking about when he said that? What was he talking about? Himself. He was talking about his own physical body. Destroy it, and they sought to, through crucifixion. He says, you will do this, uh, but uh, death, mine, won't won't be the last word. Death won't have the last word. Life will in three days. I will, there will be the resurrection. I will rise up from death. That's what he's talking about. But of course, they don't get it at this particular time. But he's speaking of 
Resurrection. He's speaking about life, not death, having the last word. So they were asking for a sign, and they wanted it right then and there, miracles on demand, uh, so as to authenticate his messiahship. And instead, he alludes to the most, I think, authenticating sign of his messiahship that there is, the resurrection. Did you come up with that when you had your discussion? Folks, the thing that distinguishes Jesus from all other pretenders to the throne, the truth, the reality, the event that makes him categorically different is the resurrection. That's the key that separates Jesus from all others. Now, you're going to run into people who dispute the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And you know what you ought to do? you ought to point them immediately to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the most authenticating sign in all the Bible that distinguishes Jesus from everybody else, the resurrection. So how can it be explained? Uh, some say the resurrection is explained this way. Jesus actually never died, and therefore there was no death for him to be raised up from. Instead, he fainted. And later, he was revived. Have you heard this one? It's called the swoon theory. He, he fainted. And, you know, then he, then he sort of woke up, so there's no resurrection at all because there's no death. Yeah. Uh, you need to persuade someone who's sharing that alternative explanation with you uh, that uh, it doesn't make much sense. Look. Did Jesus succeed in fooling seasoned Roman military men? Did he succeed in fooling them into thinking um, uh, that this was the case? The, the, the Romans at the crucifixion were specially trained. They were expert in bringing about and verifying death. That was their role. They were not... Uh, Greg and I were talking earlier, I think. Greg, they were not in medical records. <laughs> you know what I mean? These were the, they knew how to impose death, and they knew how to verify it. So the, the, the theory that the Lord fainted, thus fooled seasoned Roman uh, uh, soldiers that he, in fact, was dead when, when he wasn't, you'd have to believe he succeeded in that. Uh, you'd also have to believe... Uh, that in the uh, very intricate and lengthy Jewish burial process, the folks who were applying spices and linens and wrappings and all the rest, somehow they missed the point. Somehow they missed his inhalation and exhalation. They too thought he was dead when in fact he was just, he was just, he's, he fainted. And then you'd also have to believe that after he, having has, had survived a very severe beating with enormous loss of blood, and then surviving the crucifixion, and then surviving a spear wound to his side, and then surviving entombment in a cold and damp place with no food, water, or medical attention, you'd have to believe that after all that, he sort of then just woke up uh, again, no medical assistance, no food, no water, no nothing, and somehow summoned up the strength sufficient to move away um, a huge stone uh, which was rolled down into a uh, depression carved out of the ground. He would, have to, he would have to push it uphill, so to speak. 
You'd have to believe he managed to do that and then overpowered the seasoned, rough, tough Roman guards who were there to make sure there were no shenanigans with the tomb. You, you would have to believe, listen to me, if you're in a court of law and someone is presenting that as an explanation for the so-called resurrection, someone is saying there is no resurrection, he just fainted, and this is the evidence they're presenting. What are you thinking? You're in the jury. You're thinking, are you out of your mind? That is just not the case. Listen, listen, folks, we use the word faith a lot, faith in Jesus. Faith doesn't mean there's no intellectual evidentiary basis for what we believe. Folks, there's evidence for the resurrection. I'll get to it in a second. And any theory to the contrary is really, really weak and foolish. If you believe, someone tell this person who believes in the swoon theory and tries to persuade you of it, tell that person that person has more faith than you can muster. That person is being required <laughs> to put logic in neutral <laughs> and make this blind leap from clear rational thinking to blind faith in this nutso theory that after all that I just described, this Jesus of Nazareth didn't in fact die, he just fainted. Come on. Not true. Someone who doubts the uniqueness of Jesus. Point them to the resurrection. They say to you, oh no, I don't think he rose from the dead. And you say to them, well then how do you explain it? Well, others say, no, he... He didn't faint or anything like that. Uh, but there is no resurrection because his body was stolen. See, that's the other theory. That, uh, um, yeah, they, they just, his body was stolen and uh, he died and all that, but his, his body was stolen and that explains the empty tomb because people like us, we Christians, we point them to the empty tomb as evidence of the resurrection and they say there's another explanation and that is uh, that his body was stolen, which leads to this question. You, you ask the person who says that, you should ask them, by whom? Who? <laughs> I mean, who stole, who stole his body? Was it, was it the Roman, was, was, it, was, it the, was it the Jewish authorities? Did they steal his body? Could you please tell me why in the world they would want to? They were the last guys in the world who wanted to give any insinuation of the fact that he rose up from death. They want the body kept in the tomb. They don't want it to be an empty tomb. Why in the world would they have stolen his body? Well, maybe it was the Roman authorities who stole his body. <laughs> but I ask you once again, what in the world? Why would they do it? In fact, they set a guard outside the tomb. They put a seal over it to assure that this very thing would not happen, that no one could get close to stealing his body and thus misinterpret the empty tomb. No, it wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Romans. Ah, I got it. His disciples stole his body. Are you kidding me? Do you know what they did when he was taken prisoner and brought up on these trumped up charges and going through all this? Do you know what they did? They scattered. They ran for the high hills. One of his key guys denied him three times. Remember, Peter? <laughs> these, these were not... 
these were not men of heroic proportion. When all that was happening, their life, I mean, their hopes were crumbled. You know, their leader had been taken. Good night. They were running for, they were hiding out. They didn't know which one. But even if they summoned up, let's say they summoned up enough courage. You know, maybe they watched a couple Rocky movies or something. And they said, da, 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 da. we can pull this off. How are they going to pull it off? Can you tell me? How are these weaponless Jews, how are they going to overcome seasoned Roman soldiers posted outside the tomb? How are they going to get past them, move this stone? And Come on, guys. It's a whole lot easier to believe in the resurrection than to believe in these, these goofy theories. And if, think about this, if his disciples had stolen the body, his body, they sure suffered a lot and died for no apparent reason. If they stole his body knowing he didn't rise from the dead, but the explanation for the empty tomb is that they have the body, would they have died for that? And died they did. History, this is extra biblical, so take it for what you want, but history sort of tells us the way his disciples died. Stephen was stoned, James was beheaded, Philip was crucified, Matthew was slain with a sword, James, the brother of Jesus, had his brains dashed out with a club, Matthias was stoned and then beheaded, Andrew was crucified, Mark was torn to pieces by the people of Alexandria, Peter was crucified upside down. Um, Paul was beheaded with a sword. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was beaten and then crucified. Thomas was killed with a spear. Luke was hanged and Simon was crucified. Look, folks, history is full of men and women who have died for their beliefs. But while it is true many will die for what they believe, Few will die for what they know to be a lie. If the disciples stole his body and knew the resurrection was a lie, do you think they would have submitted to all this? At that point, at the point of a sword, they would have said, just kidding. But they didn't. So is there evidence for the resurrection? Yeah. The empty tomb the transformed disciples in the post-resurrection appearances. Many. On one occasion, the Lord appeared after the crucifixion. After he died, he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. So let's imagine these 500 witnesses in a court of law. Let's say each was called upon to testify, let's say for just six minutes apiece, you would have 50 hours of firsthand testimony. First-hand testimony. And what caused the followers of the Lord to go anywhere and everywhere with the message of the risen Christ? If they weren't persuaded it was true by evidence. What persuaded them to do so? What was their reward in, in preaching about the risen Christ? Was it financial? No way. No. In fact, as a reward for their efforts, you know what they got? They were beaten, they were thrown to lions, they were tortured, they were crucified. Every conceivable method available was used to get the Lord's followers to stop talking about him as a risen savior. But they kept on talking. How do you explain it? I'll tell you how you explain it. 
The resurrection explains it. It's true. They were eyewitnesses of it. They believed it. They knew they served a living Savior, and they were willing not only to live for him, but also, if need be, to die for him. Folks, it's the resurrection that proves Jesus is unique. It proves that he is one of a kind. The resurrection is what distinguishes him from all others. This is what I mean. Other religious leaders taught. I got that. But what did they do to validate what they taught? For instance, devout Muslim people follow the teachings of Muhammad. But what did Muhammad do to validate what he said? A sincere Buddhist people follow the teachings of Buddha. But what did Buddha do to validate what he said? Sincere Mormon people follow the teachings of Joseph Smith. But what did Joseph Smith do to validate what he taught? Members of the Unification Church follow the teachings of their leader, Reverend Moon, Sun Myung Moon, Reverend Moon. But what did Reverend Moon do to validate what he said? Secular humanists, non-religionists, humanists, they follow themselves. But what did they do to validate what they tell themselves? Christians follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. But what did Jesus Christ do to validate what he said? I'll tell you what he did. He rose up from death, just as he predicted he would do. Don't put him in the same category as anyone, and don't let the critic of your faith get away with it. Jesus rose up from death. The others died, period, end of story. They did not validate their teachings, and yet they have uh, followers following them without requiring of them an authentication of their right to have followers. Jesus says, I have a right to your loyalty and sincerity. I have a right to require that you submit to me, yield to me, and follow me. What I say is validated by what I did. I rose up. I rose up from death. Now back to the text, John 2 verse 20. Listen, the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. See, they're still thinking he's speaking of the physical building. It took 46 years to build it. <laughs> and you will raise it up in three days? See, Solomon, David's uh, son, built the first temple. It stood for about 400 years, and then it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. The Jewish people were then, through amazing circumstances, permitted to return from Babylonian captivity back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And this took place under their governor, Zerubbabel. It was completed in 516 BC, the second temple. Well, Herod wanted to remodel Zerubbabel's temple. You know Herod, he master builder, a genius, and a maniac at the same time. Herod wanted to uh, remodel Zerubbabel's temple because uh, 
the Jewish people felt like Zerubbabel's temple, you know, it didn't, it doesn't sing to us like Solomon's did, the first temple. It's just not as, uh, it's just not as cool. So Herod wanted to appease the Jews. You know, he was a politician. And so he decides to engage in this massive remodeling project, which was going on at the very time of the Lord Jesus. When all this is written, the temple is being reconstructed and remodeled. In fact, it, took, it began by Herod in around A.D. 19, and it wasn't completed until around A.D. 64. So in verse 21, it says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. He's not speaking about bricks and mortar. He was speaking, it says right there, of the temple of his body. They missed entirely what he was saying. In fact, while, you want to hear this? While being crucified, can you imagine this? In the process of being impaled on the cross, his detractors, mockers, hurled abuse at him. You know how they did it? By throwing up to him the very words he stated in this text. You can see it recorded in Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 and 40. It says, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him. Imagine this. This is when the king of kings is impaled on the cross. He's still breathing. He's still alive for a little while longer. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it. See, see, they're throwing his words back up at him. They totally misunderstand. They think he was talking about the physical temple, but he wasn't at all. They don't get it. So they use this to insult him. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. You can't save the temple for crying out loud. You're not going to be able to pull that off. You, you, you can't do that. You can't even save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Oh, they totally misinterpreted the Lord's words at the time. But not everyone did. The same words which were hurled up at the crucified Lord in the process of his uh, suffering on a cross, those same words had an entirely different effect on those who are his true followers and disciples. And you can see it in verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. At the time when the Lord said these things, even his disciples did not have full understanding. As you read through the gospels, you find out they had many misunderstandings of what he had to say. However, it was the resurrection that for them put all things together. Somehow, the resurrection uh, removed confusion, doubt, partial understanding. Somehow it all fell into place. The resurrection of Jesus Christ for his followers validated everything he had previously said to them. Even those things which they couldn't fully lay hold of and grasp, now it all penetrated their hearts and their minds. It was the resurrection that validated all of the sometimes confusing words of the Lord Jesus. Now, folks, if you want to discredit what Jesus said, all you have to do is discredit what Jesus did. Put that burden of 
disproof on the shoulders of the one who refuses to acknowledge that Jesus is Savior. Put it on them. You say to them, all you have to do to discredit the words of Jesus is to discredit the work of Jesus. Disprove, tell them, disprove the resurrection. Put that burden on them. Folks, the resurrection of Jesus Christ validates everything he said. If you want to discredit Jesus, all you have to do is discredit what Jesus did. He rose up from death. If you can disprove what he did, you have succeeded in disproving what he said. But you cannot disprove that he rose up from death. Put that burden on the naysayer, the critic who is keeping your faith and mind at arm's length. Put it on them, the burden of disproving the resurrection. Let them come up with an alternative explanation like the swoon theory or the stolen body theory, and then you could obliterate it. And then you could tell them the facts and how their adherence to these alternative theories requires more blind faith than your informed faith in the fact that Almighty God subjected himself to death as an enfleshed man, so as in his death to pay the penalty for our sins that we may live. And that almighty God, who had the capacity to become enfleshed and die, has the capacity to be empowered to overcome the last enemy death so as to live again. You tell them it requires less faith for you to believe in a risen Savior than for them to deny that the Savior, in fact, is a risen Savior. Folks, only the resurrection can account for the evidence of the empty tomb, the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord, and the transformed disciples. Jesus rose from the dead. This is what he did. And what he did validates what he said. They want him to validate what he said through some crass magic. He said, no, that which vindicates me and validates my words is the resurrection from death. What Jesus did validates all that Jesus said. And here as we close is one simple thing Jesus said. It's in John chapter 14, verse 19 and... If you have enough faith, maybe one day we will actually get there. I don't know. It's a stretch. But this is what he said in John 14, 19. Because I live, you shall, how does it end? Live also. Because I live, this is what he said, you shall live also. Listen, folks, in the last few days, we lost a number of people near and dear to us as a church family, and particularly to their actual family members. Um, one lady's mom, another lady's brother, another lady's husband. It hurts. It's, uh, 
in some cases striking, surprising, even shocking. You grasp for something to say. You want to give hope and words of comfort. You wish that the finality of, of death was not so final. Wish, you wish you could say, but, 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 because of your mother's faith, your brother's faith, your husband's faith in Jesus, you wish, if they had placed their faith in him, you wish you could say on that basis, I think maybe he, she will live again and that you will see, I, I think, I hope, I wish. And you grasp for words. You, folks, Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. And you must offer those words with such assurance and certainty uh, uh, that it removes all doubt and replaces hopelessness and despair with a, a, a ray of, of hope that death's sting has been removed and that death is not the final word, but resurrection has the last say in it. And you, you, you struggle and you hesitate a little bit because it's so wondrous and wonderful. And who are you to say something like, who are you? You too are a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You serve a living Savior. He has evidenced the fact that he's alive from death. And what Jesus did validates what Jesus said. You ought to state it with utmost conviction. You ought to shout it from the mountaintops. You ought to dispel the darkness of grief by giving a word of hope. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. Well, Jesus said it, but how does he validate? What Jesus said, he validates by what he did. Muhammad didn't do it. Buddha didn't do it. Nobody did it but Jesus. He stands alone. He's one of a kind. He rose up from death and then said, those who follow me will live also. Folks, we ought to be the most hopeful <laughs> group of people on earth. No matter what happens, Jesus is alive. No matter what happens to us, no matter when our it's always a short span here, but for some it's shorter than others. Whenever our span here ends, yes, tears are legitimate. Grief is a reality. But the Bible says, but we don't grieve as those without hope. What hope? The words of Jesus, backed up by the work of Jesus. Here's the word. I'm repeating this quite a lot, aren't I? Because I want it to get through my head and yours. I think yours is as thick as mine is. <clears throat> Jesus said, because I live. What? Life after death. That's called resurrection. Because I live. Jesus said that. You will live also, man, 
That's good stuff.